Welcome to episode 50 of Closer Mentality. I'm your host, Julia Mellett. Think back for a second about your introduction to sport. Your parents placed you on a team with other small children who could run and jump and kick just as you could. There was very little developmental difference. Now, imagine you were unable to move like the other children. Certain motor skills were more difficult. Some you weren't capable of doing at all. Your body seemed to fight back against specific movements, and you didn't know why. Imagine growing up in those shoes. Those are the shoes that Isis Holt laces up every day. Holt, who was diagnosed with cerebral palsy at age 7, grew up with parents who treated her no differently than the able-bodied children she went to school with. My parents never really treated me any differently to any other child, and I think that was it was really interesting for me growing up because I was diagnosed quite late um, for most cerebral palsy children or athletes Um, it's usually very early on and I was a little bit later and so most of my life I spent sort of moving in a particular way or having difficulty with certain things and not really placing much value or meaning on that I was just sort of like I can't skip as well as those kids and that doesn't mean anything it was just the way it was Um, and then when I was diagnosed it was very much delivered to me in a way that, you know, you have cerebral palsy, but that's not really going to change who you are or what you do. And so as a very young child, I think that was really great in sort of shaping my sense of self. It was never purely centred around disability, which I think was important to to me at the time and to me now, definitely. Um, and so when I was around, I think I was nine or ten, my family and I actually did a six month trip around Australia. And um, it was, it's quite funny looking back on it now because I was keen as to just get involved in anything that I could. And I had, at the time I had these AFO sort of leg braces that I would wear and they were covered in like butterflies and flowers. And I just thought they were the best thing ever. And um, looking back on it now, I remember being quite young and being really surprised when people would sort of stare or ask questions about you know, what was wrong with me, because to me, there was nothing really wrong with me. Um, And I think that really shaped how I thought about sport, how I thought about Paralympic sport, and how I think about what I do now in terms of everything. For me, it's sort of about letting, um, I guess, disability, sport, whatever it might be, sort of complement who I am, rather than sort of define everything that I do. There was definitely a sense of having to reckon with something that I didn't understand. I think a lot of people perceive any disability to be extreme disability. So when my parents sat me down and said, you've been diagnosed with cerebral palsy, all I could think about was the extreme, severely impaired version of cerebral palsy that I had seen on TV, for example. And so identity wise, I kind of looked at that and was like, well, I know that's not me. I'm not that person. So where does that sort of leave me in this um, category of disability and I was quite young then so I, I remember I used to walk around school and I'd have that, those, that leg brace on and kids would sort of ask if I'd broken my leg or like what had happened and so I think learning to explain who I was um, under this category of disability was really quite strange to me when I'd grown up being told that I was sort of just like every other kid and I truly believed that so then I think from there finding sport finding a space where I felt like I was um I kind of had all the agency and like you know it didn't feel like a bit of a a pity invite or anything like that it felt like a place that was solely ours and I think for me 
that changed that perception on disability. It wasn't something I had to kind of awkwardly explain. It was something that everyone looked at and went, yep, cool. We know what that is. Let's perceive these people more as athletes rather than just people with disabilities. So I think it was very empowering for me to find something that made me feel strong and capable and didn't reduce this idea of disability to something that just sort of said, this is what we can't do. It's funny because there are only small things I remember in terms of of primary school when I was initially diagnosed. I think for me, it was, um, there was obviously the odd kid that was kind of like, what's wrong with you? Is your leg broken? And you sort of go, no, I have CP. And like kids who are like seven or eight go, okay, whatever, and kind of move on, um, which is great. For me, it was actually more the adults that I found really hard to, uh, I guess, process or understand or um, even just sort of explain things to. When, again, when I went on that trip around Australia, um, I wasn't I wasn't at school. I was with my parents and I was um, camping and I was running into a lot of families. And often it was the adults that would stare. It was the adults that would ask questions. And to be a young kid and have to explain to an adult something that they don't understand, it's a very odd situation to be in, I think. And it was that sensation of I guess thinking you know when you're really young you sort of think adults know everything and so when a parent came up to me and was like oh what's wrong with you have you broken your leg and I sort of have to explain and they sort of sit there and go oh that's interesting you it's it's that that really caught me off guard and made me think oh like is there something wrong with me like if adults don't understand it how you know maybe it's not normal so I think more than anything it was it was that that was harder to to process and anything kids said as you say just kind of came along with like classic kind of schoolyard talk that you you get over eventually. <laughs> Holt's sport experiences began prior to her diagnosis when she was drawn to equestrian. It solidified her love for movement and cultivated a deep desire to improve upon her skills. I was always like a very active kid. Um, I actually started out in equestrian um, when I was quite young and that was what I did for, for years. Um, and then when I was in grade six, so I was around 12 or 13, um, I joined my school athletics program and it was more or less just a, a fitness thing for me. It was just for fun that I joined this program and I happened to really like it. Um, and then I guess from there it, I stuck, I stuck with it and it, it kind of grew really quickly for me and I, um, eventually started competing and. Yeah, I guess everything happened within the space of a few years. So I did fall into it, but I also sort of fell into a love for it as well, which was really nice. Holt says that athletics, or track and field, quickly became her life. She transitioned from sprinting atop horses to using the power in her own two legs to push her forward. Twelve years old at the time, the Australian didn't even realize the journey the sport was about to take her on. Her coach persuaded her to begin racing, but the only competitions she had were able-bodied athletes. It wasn't until she began training with a team that incorporated other athletes with cerebral palsy that she finally realized she might have found a home. For me, it was just knowing that I had uh, a place that was um, wholeheartedly mine or ours in the sense of, of athletes with disabilities. And I think that was really special because up until then I was training and competing against able-bodied kids, which was fine, but I was always sort of resigned to the fact that you know, I was never going to be elite in that field. Um, and so when I discovered that not only Paralympic sport existed, but sport that was catered to even my specific disability, 
it was it felt like such a relief because I felt like I had a place where I really belonged and I could really explore what I was capable of. She had to familiarize herself with how the National Paralympic Committee of Australia classified her cerebral palsy. And suddenly, the world seemed to open up for her. Paralympic classifications dictate four specific cerebral palsy classes, T35, T36, T37, and T38. The T stands for track, and the four main classes signify athletes with cerebral palsy and traumatic brain injuries. In order to qualify within the bounds of these four, an athlete must need, quote, assistive devices for walking but not in standing or throwing. The athlete may have sufficient function to run, but demonstrates poor balance, end quote. The cerebral palsy classifications, those are the ones that are divided into the T35, T36, 37, 38. So that's what those 30 categories are. They're, they're cerebral palsy classes or, um, I guess, impaired coordination classes. So for us, um, it can be quite a gray area obviously um, certain disabilities look different on everybody I mean when you're talking about amputees it's a lot clearer they either have the limb or they don't um, with us cerebral palsy can affect us all differently so the nature of these classes is to sort of differentiate between those impairment levels and I guess try to make it as fair as you possibly can um, so for us they I guess sort of go in order of area and degree of impairment. So a T38 would be considered least impaired and they would also have the least number of limbs impaired. So it might be one leg, one arm, and it may not be too severe. Um, and then you sort of just go down from there. So a 37 is a lot like a 38, but probably more impaired in that one or two limbs. Um, 36s are a very gray category. They confuse me a little bit as well, to be honest, but um, that is again, the same sort of thing. They might have two or three impaired limbs and it could be to a more severe degree than a 37. And then 35s, which is my category, consist mostly of athletes with diplegia cerebral palsy, which just means that the cerebral palsy affects both sides of their body and um, impairment can be quite severe for those athletes. So. That's kind of how that works. And then any classification below that in the cerebral palsy classes would be usually wheelchair-bound athletes. When Holt began racing against other athletes with cerebral palsy, her skills began to click. She felt at home on the track and loved the way racing made her feel. Then she started winning. Holt smashed through the races at the beginning of her career. Due to a win at a national competition, she automatically qualified for the 2015 IPC World Championship. She was 14 at the time. When Holt got to Qatar for the competition, she'd never been out of Australia before. She'd only been running competitively for a year. I qualified automatically for my first World Championships at a Nationals event. So I, the coach that I was working with when I was around 13, 14, he, um, he had a few athletes that he would take to a national level and compete there. So he knew a few people in terms of um, just I guess the next level of sport, if that makes sense. Um, and so I was lucky enough that when I competed at my first nationals and qualified for the world championships that next year, it just kind of put my name on a list, I guess. And I just sort of went through all the protocols and things that came with that. Having said that, um, the the Paralympic Committee, I think in, in most countries, especially in Australia, have like talent search days. And as far as I know, a lot of the young athletes that are coming through now are identified there. Um, 
where they sort of have the opportunity to go and participate in sport and and then you know hopefully turn that into something but for me it, it sort of all happened very quickly I sort of found myself qualifying for things before I even knew what they were so yeah it was a very very strange time. <laughs> in both her 100 and 200 meter runs she not only won she set T35 world records for both. It was definitely surreal I think I as I said I went in purely with the idea that I just wanted to do my best. And so I did that. And I did that very, very simply. I didn't go in with any real sort of race plan. I hadn't had any coaching in terms of how to mentally prepare for something like that. I literally just showed up and ran 100 meters and ran 200 meters. Like it was that simple. And I think coming away from that event and being told, you know, you just broke two world records, you won two gold medals. I sort of like, okay, but I also just kind of did what I thought I was supposed to do. <laughs> um, and so it wasn't until the following year after my first World Championships and that leading into my first Paralympic Games that I really began to feel that pressure and, and the, I guess, the enormity of what I might have almost accidentally done. <laughs> it certainly didn't feel like something I did on purpose, not then. I almost look back on that and wish I had enjoyed that more now because I, I was just a kid showing up to another competition and I was naive and I was young enough to not know the all the little things that come with being an elite athlete because I wasn't one yet, not really. Um, and so I think that was, it was a time for like a lot of learning, a lot of growing, but also just experiencing things for the first time and I'm lucky that my my opportunity to experience those things for the first time happened at a world championships and not at a Paralympic Games because they're two completely different events and I think going into your first Paralympics with no previous experience of international travel international competition any of that is just so overwhelming for a lot of people 2015, my first World Championships, I was 14. I was in year eight at school, which is our second second year of high school. Um, I had my little friendship group. I hated maths, you know, like I was just, I was just a 14 year old kid. And then 12 months go by and I was preparing for my first Paralympic Games. And suddenly I was being interviewed asking when I would be breaking more world records, whether or not I'd be winning gold in Rio. Um, and at the same time, I was in year nine, where suddenly teenagers become quite fierce and quite um, ruthless, as you were saying. And I was also in the process by that point of moving, moving high school. So I was in this huge phase of transition. I had a lot of pressure socially trying to figure out what high school looked like, what it was like to be like I was 15 so it's a very like interesting time <laughs> um, and then also I had a lot of um, again a lot of adults a lot of important people coming up to me and asking me if I would be bringing gold home for my country to Paralympics and I didn't even know like what that looked like for me so the pressure was intense and I think that was what made Rio stand out from all of the other comps that I've done it was the the culmination of what pressure looks like and I think what it looks like when pressure gets to you and that was what really sort of stuck with me afterwards I remember leaving that event and sort of thinking god like I wish I had gone in with a little bit more peace of mind or a little bit more sort of um comfort of some kind to sort of get me through that event but 
it was almost like a teething period of just you just have to do it for the first time and it's going to be awful it's going to be uncomfortable and then from there you just learn almost immediately after setting two world records holt came under scrutiny it was nearly unheard of for an athlete to just materialize at the highest level of competition and set records off the bat i think initially a lot of controversy and, and a lot of backlash i felt from um certain like people and certain groups of people around classification was a really big thing um and when you have an athlete sort of come out of nowhere and do really well that gets thrown into into question and, and whether or not they deserve to be where they are and if they're there for the right reasons and so at when i was 14 people were sort of saying you know like you shouldn't be in this classification or you you don't deserve to be winning these medals that was like mind-boggling for me but i think largely and for the most part um people were incredibly excited for, for me and for what i could go on to do i think i was still that kid where i was i was 14 and they were like oh you're gonna go on to do great things and i was like oh yeah whatever we'll, we'll get there when we get there like <laughs> let's not talk about 2016 and you know 2020 and what that looks like i was like i just want to kind of get through this event and celebrate afterwards and go back to school so um yeah, it was a very interesting time where I felt like I was living these two separate lives where people were really excited for me and I didn't really get the hype. I was just kind of doing what I thought I should be doing and what was best. Then, Holt qualified for the 2016 Rio Paralympic Games. She lined up on the blocks, which are voluntary starting points for T35 athletes. And then, like slow motion, she saw one single girl ahead of her in both the 100 and 200 meter races. China's Xiao Zhou. Zhou took not only both gold medals, but established both world record times, milliseconds ahead of Holt. I, I went in with this expectation that I was, I was gonna win those events. And especially in these sprints events, the difference between winning and, and coming second is a matter of milliseconds. So I think the, the reception externally, eventually, and also probably immediately, it just didn't feel like it at the time, was hugely congratulatory and, and people were so happy for me and, and it was a very exciting time and everyone was sort of saying you know you're so young and it's your first Paralympics and you've got two silvers but I just remember a, a very deep feeling of of, um, of failure and um, disappointment and the sense of having let a lot of people down because I hadn't lived up to um, what I'd been able to achieve the previous year and I think it's amazing to me now especially having had a few years to sort of you know get a little bit more experience that silver medals feel can feel like failure for some when when the pressure is so extreme um but I think that's why Rio was such a big turning point for me because it was the first time in the athletic world that I hadn't achieved what everyone had sort of hoped I would or that I hoped I would and so I had to really um face that sense of disappointment face on and um, it was incredibly humbling for me but it was also great motivation for future competitions to to sort of really engage with what sport meant to me and, and where I wanted to take it. That extreme pressure sent Holt into soul-searching mode. Yeah it's really interesting I think um, I put a lot of pressure on myself to always be the best and I had this, I guess, idea that anything less than that simply wasn't good enough. It was, you know, it's fine for anybody else, but it's not fine for me, which I think is a very common mentality for a lot of athletes. Um, because if you don't 
have that sort of internal drive to kind of want to be the best, then you you don't end up there. And I think for me, um, I I was still quite young and I was still quite naive around what uh, I guess doing things for the right reason looked like. And back then, I was doing things to to obviously please and appease other people. And I think for me. Going into Rio, I was like, oh, well, everyone will be happy if I win these events. And then when I didn't, I was like, well, everyone mustn't be happy with me now. And I think that was something that I really had to work on and really had to um, put a lot of time and effort into to sort of change that mindset. But yeah, going into London, I was a little bit older, but I was still a little bit nervous around what success would look like for me and whether or not that would even feel enough for me. Um, as I began to kind of think about what, yeah, what it looked like and what it might turn into. Then, Holt won London's 2017 World Para-Athletics Championship with two golds in the 100 and 200 meter competitions. Her 100 meter time, 13.43 seconds, broke the world record. Now, she was effectively back on the gold medal and world record kick, but it wasn't enough. London was incredible. London in 2017 um, was and still is probably my favorite event that I've ever done. It was just the highlight of my career so far. I think nothing feels better than than having a comeback. Nothing feels better than that. And so after Rio, I was, I sort of went away and I sort of, you know, had to think about what I was doing and if I even wanted to be there and deal with that sense of, of failure and disappointment that wasn't necessarily true, but was certainly true to, to me. So I think going into London, um, I, I felt quite sick actually two weeks before I went away. So in terms of expectation and in terms of this sense of pressure, I just didn't really feel it going into that that event. So to come away with a world record and two gold medals from that was, was huge. And it was um, incredibly reassuring to me and quite empowering in knowing that I was capable of, of being in that, that place again. And that's, you know, it's the whole reason for why you train. It's to see if you can get back to that point. So... Yeah, it was pretty special. London 2017 was quickly followed by 2018's Commonwealth Games in Australia. Holt not only took home gold in the 100 meter, but her time of 13.58 seconds broke her own world record time. It was an interesting moment for me because I realized that, I realized a few things. One was that if I wanted to continue being the best in the world, I had to continue being better than myself. And I think that is, it can be empowering and it can also be really scary because I knew that um, I had nobody else to compete against except for me, but I also knew that if I failed in some capacity or didn't show up in some way, that it would be it would be quite obvious and, and those records could be taken from me. And, you know, it was very much like once you start thinking about it, you just kind of spiral. So that was one side of it. But I think also by 2018, I began to realize um, my sort of motivation behind sport and my reason for why I was doing it. And that was when it sort of occurred to me that I did feel this sense of having to um, perform to please other people. And I remember being at the Commonwealth Games in 2018 and I just won my gold medal at that event and I took it home or I took it back to the village. And I was sitting on the little couch in our apartment and it was just me because it was quite late. And I had the medal in front of me on the table and it was like shiny and beautiful. It was in its box. I was looking at it and I felt nothing. I just looked at it and I was like, this is great. 
but it doesn't feel like I earned it for the right reasons. And so that was this huge moment of, I guess, realization for me that I, I knew that if I didn't take a step back from what I was doing, I would either be doing it continually for the wrong reasons or just learn to hate it. Holt crossed the finish line at age 17 and began to have anxiety surrounding remaining the best in the world. She had spent nearly the entirety of her teen years competing on the world stage, making a name for herself. Yet the process had waned its appeal. At that point, I'd been competing through the entirety of my teen years, pretty much. So from 12, 13, all the way through to I was around 17 by the time I took um, a break. And so I had this feeling that while all my friends had been going to school and then going out on weekends and progressively doing more and more things that teenagers do, I was going to training, I was going to bed early, I was trying to eat well, sometimes failing at all of those things, um, and just feeling like I was missing out. And I just had this sense of everyone's living this incredible <laughs> teenage dream and I am, I'm out here training, like I'm missing something. And so I, I took that break and for me, it was an opportunity to focus on all the things that I had kind of put to the side for all of those kind of years. And it meant that I got to reconnect with um, Equestrian for a little while, which was great. And I got to really apply myself to school, which was something that was and still is really important to me. And I, I knew that if I was going to do um, year 12, that I, my final year of high school, that I really wanted to do the best I could. And I, I knew the courses I wanted to get into. I knew what I wanted to study. And I knew that if I wanted to do any of those things, I had to kind of put all of myself into that and that was what I wanted to do and I, I knew that and I think because that reason why was so clear for me it made it easy to kind of take a step back because it was it was where I wanted to be it was what I wanted to be doing and it was important that I honored that at the time so yeah I guess it was quite simple in hindsight. Holt had been working with both a clinical psychologist and a performance-based psychologist during this time and she found that delineating between the two was crucial for her mindset. I think for me, the differentiation between the two was really important. I, I liked being able to, I guess, compartmentalize those parts of my life. Um, I, I think I'm somebody who can be quite perfectionistic and quite sort of, um, I have this sort of desire to be good at things, everybody does. Um, and I think when I was at school and I was sort of going through that, that early high school phase at the same time that I was going through elite sport, um, at the time I started off in a, a private high school. So um, at this girls' school, I, I by far wasn't the best in the class. I wasn't a standout student. I was probably a C, B grade average. And for me, I was like, well, this is how it's always going to be. It's not satisfying, but it kind of is the way it is. And that took a lot of my confidence, I think. I managed to convince myself that I wasn't very good at things. And so when I found sport and found something that I was, I was good at, it was hugely empowering, but it also meant that those moments of perceived failure hit me a lot harder because I thought, you know, I have to be good at something. Um, eventually I, I moved schools and um, the school that I moved to was my local high school. And I began to sort of thrive academically. I loved what I studied and I was good at it. And that further changed this mentality around what being good at something looked like and how much value that had to you as a person. 
working alongside psychologists that were able to guide me through that and able to sort of center me around values and around self-worth and things like that was vital to my understanding of self and ability to stay in elite sport as well. During her break from elite performance in 2018 and 2019, the reality of her loss hit Holt harder than she had anticipated. 17 year olds aren't doing anything cool. Like, I don't know what <laughs> I thought everyone was doing, but I, yeah, I wasn't missing anything. I think I, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know what I did in that year. I can't even be like, oh, you know, like the parties were great. And like the things I did were so exciting. I didn't do any of that. So, I mean, it was nice to have all that time on my hands, but I realized after a while that what I loved to do was was train and what I loved to do was try and master this sport that I was a part of. And while equestrian did feel, feel that sort of need for a little while, um, it just wasn't quite the same. So it did take a year, but by the end of end of year 12, by the time I'd kind of done everything I wanted to do with school, um, I was ready to kind of reassess what it was that I was really passionate about. Mentally, it was great because I had this period of time where the only pressure I had was the pressure that was felt by everybody my age and that was just that you had to go to school and you wanted to do well and you wanted to pass your exams and being in this environment where we were all in the same boat was such a relief for me because I felt like a normal kid for for at least a year <laughs> and mentally I was able to sort of just enjoy that and as soon as I took a step back from this very adult mature elite environment I realized that I didn't have to try and be anybody I, I wasn't and I could really think about who I was and what I wanted to do and it meant that by the time I was making the decision to come back to athletics I was making that decision for the right reasons and I was really clear on what I wanted and I think if I hadn't taken that break that clarity would have been much harder to find. During her hiatus, Holt also saw her influence on the sport begin to calm down. She had relieved herself of the pressure of constant competition in comparison to others, and finally had time to dedicate to her identity outside of world records and gold medals. I've always said that I, I accidentally fell into athletics, I accidentally fell into elite sport, and I was never that kid that woke up when they were eight years old and was like, I'm going to be a, a Paralympian, I'm going to be out there like those people. I was never that kid. And so finding myself in a position where people were saying, you know, you're inspirational and, you know, my daughter who's who's six really wants to be like you one day. I couldn't empathize with that story. You know, that wasn't my story at all. So I found myself in a position where I was an athlete and I was a very successful athlete, but I just felt like that wasn't who I was. And I felt like I had so much more to offer than, than just that. And so I think feeling like, I was characterized purely by my sport was quite um, almost upsetting for me because I thought, you know, I have this love and this passion for so many other things. I don't want to just be an athlete. And that, that was probably part of that realization I had in 2018 was that this isn't all that I am. And yet I feel like that's all people perceive me to be. And that was quite troubling for me. So again, having that time to reassess and be a student, be a, a girl that rode horses again and just kind of figure out what it was that I enjoyed meant that I could kind of design my own sense of self for probably the first time. 
Holt made the decision to pick up with athletics in 2019, ahead of Tokyo's Paralympic Games in 2020. She had earned and taken advantage of her year break, and she yearned for the thrill of competition once again. But at the time I had said, and I stood by this, um, I just said, I will not be competing in Tokyo unless I have the potential to win that event. I will not be there otherwise. And everyone was kind of like, oh yeah, we'll see. And I was like, no, no, that's how it's going to be. And so um, at the start of 2020, I started working with a new coach. And um, at the time I was still living in Melbourne and he was in Brisbane. So we were coaching and training between two different states, which meant that for at least, it would have been almost six to eight months, we were doing all of our sessions over Zoom. And it was, um, it's characteristically cold in Melbourne. The weather is not ideal for sprint training. So I was trekking out to the, the oval um, during COVID lockdowns and with a little camera to just kind of film my training for months. And so back then I remember thinking, there's no way I'm gonna be where I wanna be by Tokyo. And then towards the end of 2020, we decided to, to make the move to Brisbane. And um, I moved during huge lockdowns and whatever else was going on. But thankfully, Brisbane wasn't as impacted by COVID as, as Melbourne was. So there was a lot more freedom up here. And I was able to train with people for the first time in years and work with a coach and do all the things that I hadn't done in a long time. And I really found that passion and that love and that comfort in what I was doing. Socially distanced training for the 2020 Paralympics certainly wasn't the renaissance she imagined her return to look like, but nevertheless, Holt persisted. About a month before I had to leave, I I took him aside and I was like, Paul, I just don't think I'm fast. I'm not running fast enough. And he was like, what do you mean? Like the training, you're all on track to do well, like everything's going fine. But coaches kind of keep their numbers to themselves and they mean nothing to you as an athlete. So I was kind of like, oh yeah, whatever. I'm just saying that to like make it feel better. And then we must have been, again, about a month out from when I was supposed to leave for Tokyo. And I had a race up in Cairns, which is a smaller sort of town in Northern Australia. And there was nobody there. There was literally no one because of COVID. And I unofficially broke the 200 meter world record in Cairns about a month before Tokyo. And there was no one there except him and my physio. <laughs> and I crossed the line and someone's standing up um, above the track and they yell out the time. And I was like, oh, well, that must be wrong. <laughs> and then Paul comes up to me onto the track and he just grabs me and he goes, now do you believe you're running fast? Running fast was an understatement. Her 200 meter race set the world record at 27.33 seconds and Holt entered the postponed Tokyo 2020 races back in the driver's seat of her life. In Tokyo, Holt ran both the 100 and 200 meter sprints and found herself on the Paralympic podium in both races. The only problem, she won two silvers. Her 100-meter race time of 13.13 seconds became her personal best time, but it still placed her in second behind, once again, China's Ziao Zhou's 13 seconds. I knew going into that race that I might win it or that I might not, and I actually sat down with my sports psychologist the day before my 100 in Tokyo, and he was FaceTiming me, and he's like, right, how are you feeling? And I just said, Jonah, I'm worried. <laughs> he was like what are you worried about? And I was like, I'm worried that I'm going to, I'm worried I'm going to come second tomorrow. And he was like, okay, you know, classic, fair enough. And then I said, but I'm also worried that I'm going to win. <laughs> and he was like, right, okay. And I think that, that I guess is sort of in a nutshell, I think that's what being an athlete is. It's this 
this anticipation for what you're going to do. It's the unknown of what's going to come from that. And so I think when I went to race the following day, I was behind the blocks knowing that I had done everything I could up until that point. I had my, my training was well and truly done. I had my warm up done. I had my little mantras going. I was about as prepared as I was ever going to be given the time and space that we're in. So crossing the line second with the PB, like I, I knew that I couldn't have done any better than I did that day. And so for me, the silver was a huge reward because it meant that it really did show all of the work I'd put in. Sure, it wasn't gold, but that didn't really matter to me at this point because it, it wasn't really about that. And I think the fact that I was able to come out, run faster than I'd ever run before and then have something to show for it was sort of all that mattered to me. And even if I didn't have something to show for it, it was still an achievement and that's sort of all I was there to do. Holt, now 21 years old and a psychology student at the University of Melbourne, realized that silver didn't denote failure for her any longer. If she could set a personal best time and still come in second, she had exhausted all her capabilities for that moment. She had done the best she could, and the chips fell where they did. Now, she has three years to prepare for Paris 2024, and the training has already begun. I mean, we're training harder than we were before. We know my body better than we did before, so we're really experimenting with, with load and with different kinds of um, training sessions. And I think for me, that's been a huge mental adjustment just as much as it has been physical because we're really asking a lot more of my body, which is exciting because, you know, I can't imagine where that's going to put me in three years' time. Um, so that's probably the biggest thing, but also I think mentally continuing to work with the, the psychs that I've worked with for so long and really start to pull apart the niche sort of little things about um, the, the sporting mentality and even just my personal mentality around where I'm at and where I'm going. and. Um, you know, you wake up every morning and some mornings you think, yep, I love what I do, can't wait to go to training. Then some mornings you wake up and you're like, why do I do this? And it's being comfortable with, with that and learning to embrace the fact that you're not, you don't wake up as the perfect athlete every day. And in fact, there's no such thing. So it's, yeah, there's still little things that we grapple with, but we're definitely working with a lot more than we ever have before. Heightening her training has yet to manifest the influence of Holt's cerebral palsy but she anticipates that six day a week sessions are bound to catch up to her. Again, it can be different for everybody. It'll be interesting to see how how training impacts my CP. Um, it's hard to know right now. It'll probably be something I figure out when I'm a little bit older and I'm not training or competing anymore. Um, generally, CP tends to sort of stabilize as you stop growing. So that's probably something I've noticed the most as I've picked up training again in my like early 20s, late teens, was that my body was was stronger, it was more consistent, it was able to handle more load because it wasn't growing <laughs> and it wasn't trying to manage CP and, and growth at the same time. So I think now my my sort of baseline CP is far more predictable and it's more about seeing how much load I can handle and having a look at what burnout looks like on me compared to somebody else. and. That's probably been the biggest thing that we've had to adjust to is that idea of neural fatigue is something we really have to factor into my training. So that might change over time. My capacity to, to take on more load might increase, it might not. And I guess it's really experimenting with, with where that limit is or if there even is one.
Her training is regimented through parameters that not only set out to challenge her, but also cater to her cerebral palsy-induced ramifications. Mondays are, they're a track and a gym day for me. So I'll do a light track session um, early in the morning and then we'll go from the track straight into the gym. We'll then do a full, um, full gym session. And then from there, I'll probably, I usually go into physio and then Pilates and then massage all on a Monday. It changes um, depending on other things that are going on, but that's where we're kind of at at the moment. Um, Tuesday will be another track session. So we were usually there for, for a while, actually. So we, we're in the tra on the track for about two, three hours. And then um, I'll go and do recovery, which is really important for me. So we'll jump in the ice bath for a little bit and then I'll go back into the gym and do a light gym session. Um, Wednesdays, we're back in the gym again. Um, doing a full strength session. Um, that's usually when I'll get physio or treatment of some kind again. Um, Thursdays, we're back on the track. It's a full track session. Then back into the ice bath for recovery. Fridays um, are generally another gym session. And then if I have Pilates or anything that I've missed earlier that week, that'll go on on a Friday, as will any extra physio that I feel like I need before my speed endurance session on a Saturday, which is another track session. Or I think this week it's a hill session, so that'll be fun. <laughs> um, and then Sunday is my rest day. For athletes with cerebral palsy, it's the recovery that Holt's strength and conditioning staff prioritizes. Her physical drain is becoming more predictable as she gets older, but it maintains a toll after such rigorous movement. Recovery, I think, looks different for, for all of us. Um, for me, it consists mostly of um, physical recovery techniques. So that consists of things like physio, massage, ice baths, um, compression boots, stretching, anything and everything that kind of takes care of the physical body. Um, and then obviously I have things like sports psych to complement all the sort of mental health side of things. But yeah, that's, and sleep as well. That's a huge one. So um, we try to incorporate significant sort of recovery sessions into each track day to just kind of help us get through the week. Her mental recovery is consistently important as well. Through her psychology coursework, Holt is now keen to pick up on topics and situations that her psychologists tend to stress. It's become a way off the oval that she challenges herself. I love it and I get so excited about the stuff that we talk about and um, I there is Nothing I love more than, than going into a session with a psychologist and I think approaching them with, with topics of conversation or things that are going on in my life or in my mind that I can't wrap my head around. I think I am notorious for trying to outthink my own thoughts. And so as somebody who's sort of like, I should be able to explain this, you know, like I'm studying psych, this should make sense to me and it doesn't. And then I talk to a psychologist, a sports psych or a clinical psych and they kind of guide me in the direction of, of what's going on and I have this moment of like oh okay I don't know everything yet <laughs> and there's it's so exciting learning about myself in that way but also just learning about the field in that way um I had a really funny experience recently I sat one of my exams for psych and it was on different frameworks of, of practice and afterwards I had um I had a session with my sports psychologist and he works mainly in um, the acceptance and commitment therapy framework. So I sat down with him and we were having a conversation 
and I couldn't stop giggling through the whole session and he was like what's going on like what's so funny and it was because he was almost literally quoting things that I'd been studying in the lead up to my exam and it was like someone had given him my notes and said just slip this into conversation with Isis and that's what it felt like he was doing and so when he would drop these buzzwords into conversation I knew what they meant and I knew what he was trying to say and he didn't need to explain anything to me it was like this the best feeling ever just knowing what was what was going on so in case you couldn't tell I get quite excited about about psych and about working with people with psychology because it's just it is fascinating to me. If you're like Isis and feel as though you could really benefit from speaking with a psychology professional, I have an amazing option for you. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. I'm so happy to have them on for another week. Now that we've solidly arrived in 2022, how are your resolutions going? Are they causing you added stress? I know they are for me. That's why BetterHelp is the perfect resource. In 2022, I want to continue to create and share these amazing stories, and BetterHelp assists in furthering that mission. One of my overarching mental health goals is to create and edit these stories from a clean workspace. If I don't bring my A-game in telling these stories, I not only do a disservice to the mental health cause, but I waste the times of those who share their vulnerabilities with me. I don't take these episodes lightly, and sometimes there's no other way to tell these stories without working through heavy mental health topics like self-harm, depression, and anxiety. One of the best ways to reach your 2022 goals, even those that may seem insurmountable, is to follow through on healthy mental health habits with a licensed therapist. Now, I'm bringing that option to you, the listeners. If you've ever listened to a Closer Mentality episode and thought, I feel exactly the same way, I'm working with BetterHelp sponsorship to bring online therapy to your phone and computer. BetterHelp offers video, phone, and live chat options, and you can speak to a licensed therapist in less than 48 hours. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp has more than 20,000 licensed therapists around the country, and you have access to them anytime. You can get thoughtful messages from your therapist, and if you aren't happy, it's free to change providers. If you're worried about the cost of traditional talk therapy, BetterHelp also plans for that with accessible financial aid options. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. You deserve to prioritize your mental health this year. Get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com forward slash closer mentality. That's betterhelp.com forward slash closer mentality. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. The link is also in the show notes. Now, let's get back to the story. Regardless of how many gold, silver, or bronze medals she gets, how many podiums she stands atop, or how many world records she breaks, Holt's hope is that her story supersedes herself. Her motto, my ability is bigger than my disability, has even taken on a life of its own. I think I I remember vividly the first time I was asked for that quote. I had just come off the track uh, from the world championships in 2015 and someone was interviewing me and they go give me a quote that you live by <laughs> and I was like oh my goodness I don't even I don't know what to say and I really thought about it for probably 20 seconds <laughs> and my ability is bigger than my disability was something that I'd read a few months beforehand and it really resonated with me I think 
obviously um, the story of me growing up and never really feeling like I identified as somebody who had a disability or had the image of a disability that I knew um, meant that I always um, really favoured the idea of, of pinpointing what I could do rather than what I couldn't. And I think that at the time, that's what I was trying to communicate. I think now um, I have I have rephrased that somewhat and um, I would, I sort of coin it more as the term of, of more than just this. And it's more or less the same thing, but I guess this idea of, of being more than just one thing. And I guess back then it was, you know, I am not just my disability, I'm also all the things that I can do. And now it's sort of, I'm not just this one thing that you perceive me to be, I am so many more things than just that. And that's the really great thing about it. So that was definitely where it started. And I think that was the, the general theme of, of what I was thinking. I've started, I guess, um, creating a little bit more of a, a portfolio and a bit more of a, a place to put these conversations that we have and, and really explore these topics. So um, I'm launching a website pretty soon with some, some blogs and things attached to it that explores some of the things that we've been talking about um, and my experience with different um, elements of, of sports psychology. Um, more than just this is a huge part of that and exploring identity as being more than just an athlete or a student or somebody with a disability. So um, that's something I'm really excited to, to start and to engage people with. So um, if, yeah, if anybody is interested, um, I will definitely be keeping that updated on my, on my Instagram. You can follow ISIS's mental health advocacy, Paralympic prep and CP journey on Instagram at ISIS underscore Holt. While you're over there, check out at Closer Mental for more content from all of our guests. Give Closer Mentality Uncensored some love on YouTube as well. That's where full-length interviews with all of my guests are posted. Thanks so much for listening to episode 50 of Closer Mentality. As always, I'm your host, Julia Mellett. Next week, I'm bringing on nutritionist Denver Tyler Palmer to work through disordered eating and what draws athletes into that cycle. But until then, see you next week.